Yeah. The inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. There are many people who say they can't find a reason to believe in the Bible as a spiritual book uh, because there's too many errors, too many different versions, too many contradictions, because it's written by men. It's a bunch of old wives' fables. It's old and it's irrelevant. And on and on, people say, are reasons that they choose not to want to believe in the Bible or that it is infallible, inerrant. But according to Christianity, we believe the Bible contains God's very word. Uh, it is written by men, but it's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay, so we know according to the Bible that it is inspired. We looked in the last three weeks at what the Bible teaches about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, with that, how do we know that what the Bible told us is actually true? With so much dispute about the Bible, how can we be sure that what we have today is the same as the first century church? Number one. Two, that it is truly God's spoken word. Number three, that no other church book or religious book is valid in leading mankind on the spiritual journey to paradise or heaven. So there's a lot of books out there. We have the Quran. Tradition says that the Quran was revealed to Muhammad by an angel, and it was gradually over a period of years, and it was until his death in 632 AD. Um, it seems probable that there was no single manuscript in which the prophet himself collected of all the revelations that he was given by the, by the angel. Um, there was a guy named Abu Bakar, from, he's in somewhere 1632 to 1634, who is credited for writing a version of the Quran. And he gathered the parts from other Muslims who knew the Quran by heart from pieces of papyrus, from flat stones, palm leaves, shoulder blades, and ribs of animals, pieces of leather, wooden boards, and all kinds of little things like that. He gathered all these parts together, and that's where the Quran came from. It was not a written down thing by the one who was given the revelations. Another guy who wrote another version of it was a guy named Uthman. Um, tradition says that Muhammad couldn't read or write, and the earliest material on his life was written in 750 AD, 118 years after he died, and only in part. The rest of it was pieced together 82 years after that. So they say, and they say, from what I was reading, there's approximately 132 internal contradictions in the Quran. Okay, there's a lot of um, stuff out there in the Quran, if you read it, that is just, it's not even scientific. Okay, the Quran teaches that the stars were made to throw at the devil and the demons. That's what stars were for. There's just, I mean, there's a lot of really weird stuff in the Quran. I didn't want to get into all that. That's for you guys to do. So that's one book that we know today is one of the most popular books and one of the fastest growing religions in the world right now is Islam under a book that has this kind of discrepancy. And we're going to see, you know, why we think that the book we have is better than the book that they have. Okay. The timeline is what's going to help us out. Uh, we have out there another popular group, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They have a version of the scriptures and it is accepted only by the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Bible 
the Jehovah's Bible and Watchtower, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. I knew I'd get those three words somewhere in there. Um, it was written by six men, and none of them were biblical scholars. The New Testament portion was first released in 1950, and the complete book was released in 1961. And it is a completely biased translation, and a lot of words were in, added into it to align with the teachings of the religion. We saw that when we went through God the Father. Um, one of the main things where they say that in John 1, where it says in the beginning, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, according to our Bible. The, the New World Translation says, and the Word was a God. They added, and I went through that whole thing on that first uh, study, so I'm not going to get into the Tantheon and all that stuff that I was into. Okay, so that's another book that's a very popular religion. Um, and it's a totally different book. I don't have Mormonism in here because the Mormons do use the same Bible we do. They just add like eight books to it. Doctrines and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, Book of Mormon. That's all added to the Bible. Um, another Bible out there is the Catholic Bible. Okay, and uh, there's nobody here I don't think that's going to get offended. We'll see. Uh, I know nobody in this group. But hopefully Richard wouldn't be offended. But in that version... <laughs> And anybody listening to the tape, sorry, or CD, sorry if you get offended by this, but in the, in the version that the Catholics have, the scholars of Roman Catholicism added an additional 12 books. They're called the Apocryphal books. And they're added between the Old and the New Testament. And the Old and New Testament was a time when God was not speaking to man. Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. Well, technically John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet, but we see him in the New Testament. But it was Malachi was the last one we see in the Old Testament that we have. And there was 400 years of silence where God did not speak to man until John the Baptist. He was the next prophet on the scene who was the forerunner for Christ. And Malachi talks about that when he talks about Elijah to come, that he's speaking of John the Baptist. It's interesting. It always blows me away that those 400 silent years are called the Dark Ages, medieval times. The silent years. And that's when we see the knights and the, they're going around killing people and all that stuff. That was the time, the, the, the Maccabean revolution and all that stuff that happened at that time. Um, the crusades. There was so much that went on at that period of time when God was not speaking to man. That's where the apocryphal books come in, is in that silent period. And they, the books aren't accepted by most scholars other than Catholic scholars. Um, the reason they were not accepted is because none of them were written in Hebrew, which was the common language of the day. Um, so they don't believe them to be inspired because, number one, God wasn't speaking. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't in Hebrew, which was the language of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, we also have there in the apocryphal books where the Catholic Church gets some of the doctrines that, they're con- that are contrary to mainstream, mainstream Christianity. That's where they get purgatory the holding place for the dead. Um, and that that is, uh, it's so sad. You know, and I, I know you guys all know, and this is being recorded, so I'm, I'm going to say, um, you know, with my grandma, being the woman she was, staunch Catholic, um, man, did not cuss, did not drink. I mean, she was like, if, if you could point to a godly person in the flesh, it would be my grandma. That was her. And yet when she died, she died without faith. In fact, she... Um, I want to say she she gave money. I don't even know how I'd say that because it wasn't inheritance. It was money she gave when she died to a monastery in Boston. I want to say it was about $10,000 or so 
that she gave to that monastery to pray her soul out of purgatory. My grandma gave $10,000 for that. Totally false belief system. Purgatory is one of the things. Um, The other thing in there is the praying for the dead. The fact that somebody could pray somebody out of purgatory. They also pray to the dead. So they pray to saints. They, you know, um, as a Catholic, you guys know, I've told you, you know, you have your rosary bead and you go through your rosary and you say, uh, four Hail Marys and Our Father, four Hail Marys and Our Father. And you go all the way down when you get to the cross, you say 10 Hail Marys, 10 Our Fathers, and you go back up the rosary and you do that every night before you go to bed. Okay? It's indulgences. You're, you're getting yourself in good favor before God. The Telling the priest your sins, confessing to the priest, lighting of the candles, all that stuff, okay? None of that is biblical in the Bible. Um, and I know that there, there, I can't say uh, there would not be people in the Catholic Church that are not born-again Christians, okay? I'm sure there are people like that. Um, I have to say my grandma was not one because she didn't have faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I have to say she probably didn't have it. I don't know. God knows, you know, when I die, if I see her in heaven, I would not be shocked. And if I don't see her, I won't be shocked. I just, I don't know. That's that's God's department, not mine. I just know what this teaches. So we're going to stick with this. Okay. They also, these, these books were not canonized until 1546 AD, which was the Council of Trent um, when they did that. And the books can be used for historical reference, but again, not believed to be spirit-inspired. So the Maccabean Revolt, and there is some good history that actually happened during the 400 silent years that are in those, but it is not inspired words. So um, there's other books out there, the Bhagavad Gita, which is Hindus use that one. Um, We have the Triptakas, which is Buddhism. We have the Kitab i Aquadas or something, the Baha'i faith uses. The Kojiki, which is Shintoism. And there is the Book of Mormon, which is also used. Okay, so that's the stuff that's out there. And we have our book. And is our book as valid or is their book as valid as ours? Are they equal? Do all those roads that these books take you on lead you to God? Because they all have a different way of getting there. And that does include also the Catholic doctrines and religions. They have many ways to get to heaven other than through Jesus Christ. In fact, I never even heard the term born again until I started going to a Christian church. Protestantism. And then we're not going to get into all the Protestantism stuff. But um, the question that we, we posed or that I posed was, is the Bible that we have today without error? Right? When we think inerrant, it means without error. Okay, but that's that's not what it means, okay? This is from the Blue Letter Bible, and I don't want to say who the quote was because I really don't care for the person, but um, not personally, I don't know him. I just know some of the things of his life, and I don't want to quote him lest somebody think that he's a good guy to follow. But this was a good good quote, and he's a, he is a good apologist, or was. Uh, when we say the Bible is inerrant, we mean it is without error of fact or statements that contradict. Infallibility, infallibility, deals more with one's personal knowledge of the Lord, while inerrancy is more concerned with the details of Scripture. Okay, and that's from a Blue Letter Bible. And if you want to look it up, that quote, you would see who I was talking about. It's really irrelevant. But 
in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 26, it says that Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. But if we go to 2 Chronicles 22, 2, hang on, I'm going to go to it. Um, it says there that Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king. Hang on. Second Chronicles. I'm in First Chronicles, so that's not going to work. Okay, it says, It happened in the course of time, after the two, end of two years, that his intestines came out because of his sickness, so he died in severe pain, and so his people... Oh, I'm in the wrong place again. 22.2. There we are. Okay, so... Uh, okay, yeah... Uh, then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. And this is um, Jehoram was the king that died. The inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the raiders who came with the Arabians into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, granddaughter of Omri. So we see here an apparent contradiction in the Bible. Actually, I can't say apparent. It is a contradiction in the Bible. Because in the one place, 826, he's 22 years old, right? Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned one year. Okay, and here, 22, it says he was 42 years old. Um the problem with this error that happened, it was a scribal error. Okay, it's not a major thing that went on. In Second Chronicles 21, 20, it says, And when he had consulted with the people... Wait, am I in the right place again? 21? I'm in the wrong one. 21, 20. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, no tombs. Okay, so so Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years and he died. So he was 40 years old when he died. His son, Ahaziah, was 42 years old when he became king. The reason we know it was a scribal error is because Ahaziah became a king two years at 42 years old. His dad died at 40. He was two years older than his dad when he became king. Okay, so we know that the error was there, and it's a scribal error. They say in the Hebrew, they don't use like numbers, like a 1 and a 5 is 15, a 2 and a 2 is 22. They use symbols. And the two symbols are similar, and the scribe made an error in the symbol and put 42 instead of 22. Okay, there is no way Ahaziah could have been two years older than his dad. And that's what this says. So the NIV actually made the correction. I was shocked, but there's a one point for the NIV. I think that's the only one I've ever given to it. Um, so there is an error. We don't know why it's there. I was thinking possibly, I was talking with Mike Vasquez last night, I was saying, you know, the reform people, church, um, the dispensationalists believe that the gifts are not for today, which obviously we believe they are. The gifts are not today. And they get that from 1 Corinthians 13. They says when 
It says, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. So they're saying the gifts are just a part. And when the perfect comes, the part will be done away. And they reference the perfect as being the Bible. Okay? That right there could be a good reason to have this there. Because you can say, it's not perfect. There's an error right there. It's not a major thing. It's easy to show that this could be fixed. Um, but they're wrong because the perfect that is to come is Jesus Christ a second time, not the Bible. But that's what they, they get. And there's an error for it. So as we're going through this, there's obviously you're going to learn some stuff that you can use for apologetics or defending the faith that you have. So there's an error. So we don't mean, like the quote that I had, that the Bible is without error completely. The inerrancy is more concerned with the details of the Scripture. You know, we don't read in the Bible, in this Bible, our Bible, that stars were created to throw at the devil. Okay? Because we know stars are bigger than our planet, so we obviously can't throw them. So there's, there's scientific uh, discrepancy between the Quran and what the Bible says. Okay, so we have the scribal error, and it was left here because the scribes write down what's in front of them. It isn't their job to make the corrections. They just write. Someone made an error somewhere, and everybody else just kept copying that error. So when they say there's 2,465 errors or however many in the Bible, what they're talking about is 204,000, whatever number I just said, was written down time after time after. It's the same error. It's not that many errors. It's the same error done over and over and over and over and over as they're doing, they're transcribing. So that's, that's where a lot of that, when there's so many errors, that's what they say. Okay. But in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd lost his goat. And while looking for it in some caves in Qumran, he came across several sealed jars in, in those caves. In those jars were some scrolls later to be identified as written between 200 BC and 68 AD. So old, old stuff. And they found a copy or portions of copies of every Old Testament book we have in our Bible today, except Esther. It's the only one they didn't find. They found a copy of Isaiah that dated back to 100 BC. And it's nearly identical to what we have today, our book of Isaiah. One book, not the three that some people want to tell you, or the two, Deutero-Isaiah or however you say that same kind of word in three, Trito or whatever, Isaiah. There was one Isaiah, and it's nearly identical. The differences were slight spelling differences. Uh, most of them usually the crossing of an I, the dotting of a, I mean, the crossing of a T, the dotting of an I. Um, and that's all. The, the, there were nothing that affected the meaning of the texts. And it supports all the prophecies that, that were made concerning Christ, and it shows that these things were not written after Jesus, but long before he came. They found these and dated them at 100 years before Jesus was even born. And Isaiah, I told you guys when, you, when I went through that book, um, it is a mini Bible. It's got everything in it. It's got the whole, I mean, if you only had one book of the Bible, Isaiah would probably be the one that I would want to have because it covers it all. You got the law, the prophets, the, the future um, Messiah, I mean, it's all there. It's a great book. I loved when we went through that. It took us like three years or whatever it took us to get through it. But it was fun. Okay, so this, those, uh, the scrolls that they found in the caves in Qumran supported 
all the stuff that our Bible says today. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls that they became to be known as support the integrity of the scribes over the centuries. So, yes, we have an error. We pointed that one out. And we can freely admit there is an error. But it really isn't that big of an error because we can see how it could be made. Um, but the integrity to keep the book of Isaiah, here we are in 2017. Yeah, we're still we're in 2017. And the Dead Sea Scrolls found in written in 100 BC. So that's a long time. 20,000, 21,000 years, 2100 years, yeah. 2100 years. And it's still the same. If you've ever seen um, a New World Translation from the 1961 version, just to the to the version, the last one that I saw the corrections on was in like, I'd say it was in the 80s, late 80s. There's some 5,000 different changes in the New World Translation. It's not even the same book if you look at the two of them together. They're not even the same book anymore. But here we have a book that we can go back 2,100 years and it's identical. Still. Crazy. But that's what God said he was going to do. His word is very, very important. So another thing that goes on with the Bible, unlike all, and I emphasize all other religious books, is that it dares to predict future events. So in doing this, it not only sets itself apart from other books, it allows for real criticism if the predictions or prophecies don't come to pass. No other religious book does this. There is no other religious book that tries to tell the future. The Book of Mormon that is used, they don't tell the future. They try to tell the past. And there has never been one archaeological dig to prove anything in the Book of Mormon. It's all false. The monies they talk about, the kingdoms they talk about, the people they talk about, they've never found an archaeological dig to back that thing up. So here we have this book that's going to foretell the future. And the Bible itself holds those who dare to predict an event before it happens under the scrutiny of death. If they don't prophesy 100% accurately according to Deuteronomy 13, 1-5, they are to be stoned to death. We don't, that's part of that fear of the Lord that the scriptures talk about. We don't have that in the church anymore um, for the most part. The people teaching the Bible don't have that fear. They don't care if they're telling truth or not. I do. I know Tanner does. I know Mike Vasquez does and Adam when he teaches and the different teachers here. That's part of the thing is if you're, if, if you're just going to spew things and spout things out there that are not scriptural and you're just kind of real free with what you say, um, Tanner's going to call you. Tanner listens to these studies. He listens to what I'm saying. I think he's crazy for letting me do it because he never heard me before. But, um, <laughs> you know, like I said, he's, when he said he was learning stuff, I was pretty blown away that he was learning stuff from what I was saying. But um, if you dare to predict the future and you're wrong, you die. So you want to make sure that what you're saying is true in God's word. God is not going to hopefully ask you guys to stone me to death if I say something wrong, but I'm really careful in what I say. I do a lot of time studying to make sure that what I'm saying is truth. But today we have in our society 
people who want to be known as fortune tellers or future tellers. Uh, Nostradamus, probably the, the most popular. Uh, in Nostradamus' predictions, he never actually gave dates or names, real dates or names in his predictions. Some of the other people that are big and known in the that field of fortune telling or whatever, Irene Hughes, Gene Dixon, Edgar Cayce, um, all of these people are less than 5% accurate. And only 5 to 10% of what they predict even bears any resemblance to actual events. So you have future tellers out there, fortune tellers out there, and they're so vague. Nostradamus is, is oh, there's going to be an earthquake, you know, in the Middle East somewhere. He doesn't tell you when. He doesn't tell you how big. See, when God does it, he's going to tell you when. He's going to tell you how big it is. He's going to tell you how many people are going to die. Right? In the book of Revelations, we see that. He gives you numbers. He doesn't just say, oh, there's going to be a bad thing happen to the people in the Middle East. He's very specific because God wants to set himself apart. He wants you to know that he knows more than anybody else does. So these guys, five, less than 5% accurate and only 5 to 10% of what they predict even bears resemblance to actual events. But God's true prophets are different. They predict many times in great detail events that will happen. So we're going to look at basically one event um, or one prophecy, and we're going to see the the events that happen along with that prophecy, how it's fulfilled. So we start in Isaiah in chapter 44. One of God's prophets, again, Isaiah, my favorite, I think, I think my favorite book, definitely my favorite Old Testament book, um, 44, 26 through 45, 1. Isaiah speaking. Make sure I get it right. Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, To the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and the temple, to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Okay, the context of this is Isaiah is prophesying the captivity of Judah being taken into Babylon. They're going to be taken captive, held captive for 70 years. What Isaiah is prophesying here is their return from captivity. Not only that they will return from captivity, but the very man who would allow that return. That's the way God does it. It's not like, well, you know, he's about 6% right. We're going to see it's 100% accurate. And he names the guy. 150 years before he's even born. He names Cyrus as king. Um, Jeremiah 25. We're going to see this kind of play out. That's what I'm going to try to build basically on that prophecy through other scriptures. So Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. He says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquities, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So 
perpetual desolation. It will never again be inhabited. To this day, Babylon has not been inhabited since God destroyed it. That was one of Saddam Hussein's biggest things was he claimed to be a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar and he was going to rebuild Babylon. But being that Saddam Hussein was a mere man and God is who he is, Saddam Hussein's dead, Babylon still is not inhabited and it turned out the way God said it was going to turn out. So um, so there we have the captivity, 70 years, okay? This happened, the captivity actually happened in 598 B.C. Okay, Isaiah says the same kind of thing earlier in chapter 13, 17 through 22. He says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will spare no children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but wild beasts of the desert will lie there and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels, the jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come and her days will not be prolonged. So there we have Isaiah talking about that destruction also. So Isaiah talks about the children of Israel going into the captivity. Isaiah talks about the destruction Okay, remember, Isaiah was the one book that came out of the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have almost a complete book. Isaiah prophesied before the captivity ever happened. He was dead before the captivity happened. That's another way we know that there was only one Isaiah that wrote. The reason they try to say more is to try to disprove or disallow the prophecies because they're too accurate. And the skeptics don't want to believe that anybody could have been that accurate. So they try to say, well, there's more than one Isaiah because this Isaiah, the one we believe wrote this, was dead before the captivity ever happened. So we have God's word, his prophecy about Cyrus and all that stuff. We can see in Daniel chapter 5, 29 and 30. We have Belteshazzar who was partying with all his people in the in the uh, palace, they had all the temple cups and gold and all that stuff. And the finger comes out and right in on the wall. Many, many, take you, Farson. You've been waiting the balance found wanting. Which, if you guys, you hear, everybody knows the saying, right? The writing on the wall. That's where it comes from. It's a biblical thing. That's where it comes from. It was God's finger writing on the wall. So you see, oh, you can see the writing on the wall, right? They saw the writing on the wall when New England lost the Super Bowl, right? At halftime. They weren't looking at the writing because it didn't work out that way. But that, that would be a place you would have used that term. Is that halftime? Yeah. Writing's on the wall. They're done. And then all of a sudden, boom. Okay, so 529 and 30. It says, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a chain of gold around his neck, made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom 
being about 62 years old. Now, your notes, you can see there, I, I put Darius and then uh, Gabaro. Okay? They say in the history books and in the writings, there is no such name as Darius that was 62 years old that took over for the Med- in the Medo-Persian Empire when it overthrew Babylon. He became the governor. But they do find in the writings a man named Gubaro who was 62 years old when he became governor over the Medo-Persian Empire. So his name, we have it as Darius, the history written of old, whatever it is, his name was Gubaro. They're almost positive it is the same guy. I mean, how many 62-year-old guys are going to come in at the time the Medo-Persians take over? So why, says Darius, it, I mean, it could be easily just the names from, from the Chaldean to the Medo-Persian or whatever. I, I don't know. But that's that's what they found. They're, they're almost positive that Gubaro is Darius. So Ezra 1, negative way back. That's the bummer about the Bible not being chronological is you think, wait a minute, how can it be in Ezra? Because everything else was forward. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So we have Cyrus sending Zerubbabel with a group of Jews back to build the temple. Okay, in 1897, there was a discovery of a thing they called the Cyrus Stone. And the Cyrus Stone says, I returned to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been ruins for a long time, 70 years we know, the images which used to live therein and established for them a permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. So there is the one prophecy of Isaiah, speaking of the destruction, the captivity, the return and the rebuilding. And we saw it from, let me get this thing back up here. We saw it from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezra, all done through Cyrus, named in Isaiah 150 years before he was even born. God didn't like get close. He almost got it. He nailed it 100%. We can also see the destruction of the Ninevites in Nahum 1.10 and 3.10. 3.15, we can see the fall of Tyre in Ezekiel 26, 3 and 12, identical to what God said was going to happen to them. So those are for you guys to look up later. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, 
God says, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Okay, so God's holding this high requirement for his prophets. And then he, he doubles down. He says, I'm the only God and I will do whatever I want. And when I say something, it's going to happen. We can count on it. It's not like the other books we're not sure about. This one, just that alone. Okay, so now we're going to get into some of this other stuff here for math lovers, which is way beyond me. Peter Stoner, professor at PCC and at Westmont College. In 1944, he calculated that if you took just eight of the prophecies of Jesus Christ and for him to fulfill them, the odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies is one and ten to the 17th power. He said it's like taking two layers of silver dollars, laying them across the entire state of Texas, and then giving a blind man one chance to pick the one marked coin. I don't know how long does it take to get across Texas. A couple days? <laughs> Driving? I'm saying, mm-hmm. Driving. Walking, could you imagine? The state. Two layers thick, the whole state. Blind man, hey, go get that coin I marked. That's the chance of eight prophecies being fulfilled, according to Professor Peter Stoner. Um, so, the, to fulfill 48 prophecies of Jesus would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. The mathematicians claim that anything over 1 in 10 to the 50th power is pretty much mathematically impossible to occur. So 1 in 10 to the 57th power, 48 prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. It's mathematically impossible to fulfill 48 of them. Mathematically impossible. I was thinking, I, I remember when I, back at Pasadena, when I taught on the evolution um, series that I had done there for the high school group, I had somebody put up, because I had a mathematical probability like this, and I had him put up the ones and the zeros all the way around my classroom. I forget how many it was. Just the chance of one cell dividing and forming itself. It was something like this. You walked into a room about this big, and it started in one corner, and it went all the way around twice, I think, with the zeros after the one, just to show the probability of something like that happening. This is like beyond even that. The 300 prophecies. Like I said, 50, 48 of them is mathematically impossible. And he fulfilled over 300. Okay, so did the documents that we have, do they claim to be reporting the truth? You know, we have Luke 1, 1 through 4. Dr. Luke. He says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an ordinary, an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke, he's saying, I witnessed it myself. I'm an eyewitness to the things I'm writing. 
Remember I said with uh, with Muhammad, the stuff of Muhammad, uh, Abu Baker wrote in 632 to 634. So he started writing at the time of the death of Muhammad. He, Muhammad himself did not write the things that he supposedly received. This other guy did, and he got it from other people who knew what Muhammad had said. But there was nothing really written down. And the earliest materials that we have on his life were written about 118 years after his death. Okay? So we have Dr. Luke here. Dr. Luke is writing to Theophilus. His, They believe Luke was the doctor's slave of Theophilus because he was a very wealthy man, they think. He's writing to him right after. Hey, I was there. I watched Jesus in his ministry. I was with him doing ministry. So it wasn't 118 years later. He's doing it. He says, I'm writing because I saw it. He may have been writing a little bit later, but he was there when it happened. In Second Peter 1, 16... Second Peter one sixteen it says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter, an eyewitness, remember he was the one on the that Tanner just talked about Sunday on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was one of the boys. Three guys got to go up there and see Jesus remove his humanity so that his glory would be revealed. He didn't put on his glory. He removed his humanity. He was always full of that glory. He removed the humanity to reveal who he really was. And Peter was one of the ones that was there. He says, I'm an eyewitness to the power. I saw it. So this isn't someone that's gathering information from others. He said, I was there. I watched it happen. Um, Also, 1 John. One win. So first John one one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So John again, just like the others, he's proclaiming, I was there. I handled Jesus. I touched him. Remember at the, at, uh-oh, we're in trouble now. Lost it. At the Last Supper, it was John who leaned on Jesus' chest his, and, and said, Lord, is it I? He, they, he, no, the one whom I dip and give the sup to, give the bread to, that's the one that will betray me. But John was right there. John the Beloved, he also wrote the gospel. He was there. He's like, I handled him. I touched. Could you imagine? I touched Jesus. I've gotten to sit down. You guys know some of the people that I've gotten to hang out with and eat meals with and stuff. And some of those people, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I got to sit down and eat with these people or knew these certain people. But none of them was Jesus. I'm like, wow, that would be something. Sit down and I know uh, Tanner Sunday, he said if, if there was one place he wished he could be was on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the one thing he said he'd want. I think the better place would have been the road to Emmaus. 
to listen to that Bible study Jesus gave there. That's where I want to be. Tanner can go to the Transfiguration. I want to hear that Bible study. I want to hear all the scriptures where he says, these are the things that speak about me because I know I miss so many. That would be crazy to hear all that stuff. Also in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. Okay, so here we're seeing great detail. It's not vague. He's letting you know who was in charge of what places and governors, and this guy's a tetrarch, and he's letting you know all these. It's the detail. Because when you give that detail, now you can historically go back. Oh, was this guy really a governor? Remember, like I said, with Darius, they look. Oh, there's no Darius. We can't find Darius. But there's this other guy that was 62 years old. And he became governor of the Medo-Persian Empire when Cyrus overthrew it. It's, so it's like the detail can create problems. So that's why the people can go, oh, well, Nostradamus predicted the World War II and Hitler. Because somewhere in his thing, there's a Hissler. But Hissler is not Hitler. God didn't say some guy named, I don't know, what other name was, sounds like Cyrus. I mean, he said Cyrus. And Cyrus was the king of the Medio Persian Empire. He was the guy. And he released him. And I told you guys when we went through Isaiah and we were going through that, on that Cyrus stone, they actually recorded on the Cyrus stone that they believe that um, according to that, they read Isaiah to Cyrus and that he was the one that was going to release the Jews. And that's why he did it. So when you read that, he says, God spoke to me and told me because they said he actually had the book of Isaiah read to him and God spoke to him and said, this is what you're to do. So he did it. He thought, man, God predicted me 150 years before I showed up. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. And so, well, he didn't, didn't serve him, I don't believe, but he did do that. Okay, so now we have the time gap. We were talking about that. Is there a significant time gap between the written accounts and the events that occurred? Okay, so we have a portion of the Gospel of John written from 130 A.D., the entire New Testament, and we have that, that manuscript. A portion of John, the entire New Testament from 300 A.D., most of the New Testament books are dated to earlier earlier than 70 A.D. So the entire New Testament dates back to the first century. That's well before the 118 years that they started writing the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the uh, New World Translation or the Bhagavad Gita or any of those other ones. Within 70 years of the death of Jesus, the books were written. So the textual evidence, okay? So I wrote down some of this. There's more textual evidence to support, support the person of Jesus than Julius Caesar. The stuff of Julius Caesar uh, was written about 144, or he was around from 144 B.C. The earliest copy we have of anything on Julius Caesar was 900 A.D., 1,000 years after he died. And we only have 10 copies. Uh, Plato, from 427 to 347 B.C. The earliest copy of any of Plato's works, 900 A.D. 1,200 years 
after he died. And we only have seven copies. Aristotle, 384 to 322 B.C., the earliest copy we have of any of his works, from 1100 A.D., 1400 years after he died. We have 49 copies of that. So we're getting a little more now. We've got a little bit more stuff. Uh, Homer's Iliad, around 900 B.C. I know, I see there's a mistake, B, B.C. Um, the earliest copy we have of Homer's Iliad is from 400 B.C., 500 years after it was written. We have 643 copies of that. I think I have a copy at my house. We're talking about the original copies, yeah. not, not copy copies. The New Testament, written between 50 and 100 A.D., Right? The earliest copy we have is a 130 A.D. It's less than 100 years old. We have the copy. And we have 5,600 of them. And nobody questions whether or not Plato existed, whether Homer's Iliad was actually written. But the Bible, oh, how can you trust that thing? It's an old book. It's way from... It's like we have more copies... And I'm going to probably get into it more next week when we look at the importance of God's Word in the believer's life. We have many, many writings from the first century early church fathers from, uh, from guys like Polycarp or Tertullian and, and different guys like that were first, they were, they were like disciples of the disciples, right? Or the disciples of what we call the apostles. And they have writings and we have a lot of those writings and just in their writings that we have and possess, we can piece the Bible together, and it's the same. And I've got some books. I'm going to talk about them next week, unless you guys know, but um, I'll talk about them next week. Okay, so it's, and as far as the, the, the Bible, there are also another 19,000 copies of the Bible in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic. Okay, so the New Testament... We have 24,633 manuscripts, 300,000 variances or differences between the manuscripts. 75 to 85% of those variances are spelling differences. Less than 1% of the differences or variances have something to do with the meaning. And none of them are significant doctrinal beliefs. The, the divinity of Jesus, the Trinity, the doctrinal stuff, the creation, all that stuff. So we have all these copies and there's very, very little difference. And it's, it's kind of like with the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. Small stuff, punctuation stuff, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, commas, periods, exclamation points, stuff like that. Those are the differences. And it doesn't mean anything, really. Um, some other historical texts that there are out there, Antiquities of the Jews by Flavius Josephus, which you can pick that book up. It's about like mm -hmm. that. Unless you have that Bible program I have, the Word program, it's actually in that. Um, I have the works of Flavius Josephus, and it's it's a tough read. But um, it's it's and he's not a Christian; he's a Jew, a historian. That's all he was. But even in his antiquities, he says, "And the man Jesus, if it be right to call him a man, even he is a historian, a historian that was a Jew." knew that there was more to Jesus than just his humanity. Even he saw it because of what he worked and saw. Um, there's Cornelius Tacitus, which was the Roman, Roman historian. There's the Jewish Talmud that's out there. These are all ways that you can look and see the validity 
of Jesus because that's what's coming into question is who was he? Did he even exist? Did he die? Was he crucified? And it's all in there. It's all in these things. Uh, Another way we can look at the Bible and see the truth of it is through archaeological digs. And they're happening all the time. I don't even think we could keep up with the archaeological digs because another thing that people like to say, like we do with the Book of Mormon, is there's no archaeological evidence to prove the things that are being said. What the skeptics today do is, well, there's no archaeological dig that will prove that there was such a place as Sodom and Gomorrah. See, they don't, they don't worry about all the hundreds and thousands of stuff they've already proven. They find the one they haven't proven yet. And it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time, and then all of a sudden, oh, wait, oh, there's Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where, and I used to get, back in the 80s, I used to get a magazine that was out. It was called um, Biblical Archaeology in Review. And that thing came out once a month. And it was a, a good site, like a Time magazine. And all the archaeological digs going on in the Middle East. And how they just keep turning stuff up. Jericho was, they thought Jericho was a fake place. They didn't believe it existed. And they're doing a dig. And when they dug up the remains from Nineveh, or no, from, what did I just say? Jericho. Jericho. I was like, Nineveh isn't what I said. Jericho, when they dug up the remains of Jericho, they actually found the walls of Jericho fallen out when they did the dig. The walls did not fall into the city. The walls were actually blown out on the city. They doubted Jericho existed. Then they're digging and all of a sudden, hey, they find the stuff. This is Jericho. And then as they're digging, all of a sudden they find the wall and the wall goes out from the city, not in towards the city. When you overthrew a city, you don't go inside and push the walls outward. You're outside pushing the walls inward. But we know that the Bible says that God blew the walls outward. And when they dug that up, it's exactly what they found. It's crazy. There has never been an archaeological dig that has ever contradicted what the Bible says. They only continue to prove. So that's another way we can know. There's no um, statement related to the physical things of the Bible that are contrary to what is known. And if we don't know it yet, it's just because we don't know it yet. It will be proved eventually that the Bible is right. It just happens continually over and over and over and over. And yet we have the Book of Mormon that state to this day still have not found anything that Joseph Smith said that he found in the Americas when he came over here. The monies, the people, they nothing. The, the Mormons actually had to start making historical artifacts that they could put in their temples and stuff to prove. But it's just them. Nobody trusts in what they found. No archaeologists believe in it. But this is, and this is where we're going to end right here. This is what God said was going to happen. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. He says in verse 17, first, because this is important, we'll just go in context. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He promises it's going to be fulfilled. Not one jot, which is the crossing of an eye. Not one tittle, which is we don't use them. Um, I, always, I was just talking about the other day, Kohler being a German name. 
Kohler originally, when it came from Germany, above the O was two dots. Okay? That's the tittle. That little dot over the, the accent. In Hebrew or in Greek, a lot of the Greek words have that. And it helps you to know the, the voice inflection of the words with that tittle and where it sits. God, Jesus said, even that little mark, that won't even pass away until all is fulfilled. So we can see, hopefully, I made it clear enough, that what we have in our hands today is actually God's Word, infallible by the definition I gave to it. Not me, but the definition I read of it. Doesn't mean there may not be some errors. Little things like that. He's 22, not 42. So if someone has a big problem with it, I don't want to recommend you get the NIV, but you could get the NIV and they corrected it there. It's not a big deal. It's easy to see how the mistake is made when you use the symbols. I I was thinking of like Chinese. Because if you think of Chinese, they don't use letters either. Everything in their language is symbols. And symbols have different meanings. One symbol could have two or three meanings to it. And it's context that gives you what the symbol means. So they say with the Hebrew, that's what it is. The numbers were not numbers, they were symbols. And some scribe, they guess, saw the symbol wrongly, and so therefore he wrote it wrongly. But we can see that it wasn't a major thing. It's easily corrected because you know there's no possible way for a son to be two years older than his dad. It just doesn't work. At least none that they've ever proved that it could work. So um, That's it. I know you guys aren't going to ask me any questions, so. You won't worry about that, right? Nobody's got questions. I know you guys. I knew you wouldn't have any. All right, let's pray. Father, we don't want to thank you for tonight. I just pray that anything that I said that was not of you, that everybody forget about it, that we would be able to handle and see your word, that it's truth, that no matter what anybody tries to tell us, I hope I've proven tonight that you've kept it and you've kept it pure. You've kept it well enough that we can trust in it and in everything that it says. And we know that all will come to pass. Thank you for giving us such great evidence and the knowledge from archaeologists to scientists to theologians to the eyewitness accounts to let us know that we're handling your word and that it's true. Just continue to bless Thursday nights and bring those people you desire to be here. And uh, I just thank you for the opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.